0: Thanks for coming. Oh, there you go. <clears throat> yeah, how was it without me last week? Awesome. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I just got to be gone more often. So I had, uh, Kathy and I had the opportunity to go down and visit the Joneses down in South Carolina. And their church is doing great. They send their greeting. Uh, and, uh, it was a lot of fun to be there. <clears throat> and I heard the good reports of the ministry that you had up here with the School of Ministry. Um, <clears throat> before I jump into the, into the sermon, we've been talking about the seven deadly sins and, um, kind of going through there. Um, <clears throat> something that's been on my heart, and I just want to mention this. I've said this a few times before, but, you know, the, the best way, <clears throat> this has nothing to do with the sermon, this is just a, a bullet point or a, what would you call it? An exhortation. Thanks. <clears throat> so the best way to to, lead, to represent the kingdom of God is one-to-one. It's just one-on-one talking with someone who isn't uh, in relationship with God and you sharing uh, uh, from your heart. <clears throat> and we just have to keep that. I just feel that it's kind of like... Uh, In the, in the background of my spirit, just God saying, keep saying that. And it's just really true. We, we represent uh, the kingdom in church and in concerts and in, and crusades and whatever. All books and all those things. But the best way is one-on-one, is a person connecting with a person. And, and, uh, we, a few weeks ago, we introduced this, the prayer card where we give you opportunity to pray for someone, to keep praying for that person until you can check off on that card that that person has made a commitment to Jesus Christ, someone in our community that can be brought to church. We also have little cards that you can give to people, just an easy way to say, hey, you know, if you're looking for a church, here's, here's a good one. <clears throat> All right? What's the best way to represent the kingdom of God? Hey, it's a good idea. All right, let's pray. Father, thank you that we can come to you one-to-one, that you uh, personally... Uh, have drawn us into your, uh, into relationship with you. And we just pray anointing on this message that I can communicate what you want, uh, Lord, that our lives can be changed according to your word. In Jesus' name. Amen. Well, looking at the seven deadly sins, I realize that <clears throat> if you're, if you haven't been part of here, the previous messages, it's kind of like, wow, I was talking about seven deadly sins. What's that all about? And it's an ancient tradition that goes back, uh, at the very least, uh, uh 1500 years more likely longer than that, of particular sins, uh, sinful behavior that is particularly destructive, that the church has recognized and taught on for many, many centuries. But in our modern day, we've kind of uh, lost touch of some of the valuable traditions. <clears throat> and this certainly is one. And all of these sins are, are really uh, uh, prevalent in our society and are the real problems in our society. And we've talked about gluttony and lust in the first two weeks. Um, and the sin of today, today's sin, are you ready? Avarice! Not Avatar, that was the movie. <laughs> avarice. Lust and gluttony and avarice, and I'll explain what avarice is in just a minute, are closely related to the material bodily side of human life, okay? So you're, everybody touch your body. Okay? <clears throat> this flesh matter, you know, and substances. Uh, all three of these, the first three sins are, are particularly related to that. <clears throat> the next two sins that we're going to deal with in the uh, subsequent weeks, uh, cut a little deeper and involve our relationships with others. Okay, relationships. And the final two sins that we're going to look at out of the seven cut to the deepest level and really speak about our relationship with God Himself. So let's talk a little bit about avarice. I want to explain what it is. But uh, a big part of this series is it's a life-giving look at the seven deadly sins. So, you know, all of these sins are corruptions of something that God has given us. Uh, The book I'm using as a reference is Disordered Loves uh uh-huh, by William Stafford and so this idea of that these are good things, these are things that uh should flow out of a relationship of love, but they're out of order. <clears throat> and so I want to emphasize what the good is that this particular sin corrupts. Alright? Because that's really what I want to communicate and not just uh you know get on people's cases about what's bad, but let's redeem what is good and understand what that is. So, but what is avarice? Avarice is also known, and most in our common day, modern language is most often called greed. <clears throat> All right, It's known as uh, avarice or covetousness. This is from Wikipedia. Um, let me just read this. <clears throat> greed, also known as avarice, covetousness, is like lust and gluttony, a sin of excess. However, greed is applied to a very excessive desire and pursuit of wealth and status. <clears throat> um, excessive desire, pursuit of wealth and status and power. Uh, Thomas Aquinas wrote that greed was a sin against God, just as all mortal sins, inasmuch as man condemns things eternal for the sake of temporal things. Okay. Wow. Yeah, that's pretty intense. <clears throat> oh, okay. In Dante's purgatory, um, uh, the penitents were bound. This is an old story of basically what happens uh, in the end times. Uh, Dante's description of purgatory, the penitents were bound and laid face down on the ground for having concentrated too much on earthly thoughts, those who committed the sin of avarice. So the penitents, his way of depicting that was that their face was just bound to the ground. But in this book uh, that I'm using, it, it kind of brings a different uh, light to the word or maybe a, a, a bigger picture understanding of what avarice is. <clears throat> and of course, it is covetousness and greed, but it really is the deformation. This is a quote, the deformation of our desire to possess material things. It's just like my, my tongue's not working in the right timing. <laughs> Pardon me while I reboot. Barra. <laughs> okay. <clears> there <throat> we go. <laughs> Let's try this again. All right. Wow. Governor's greed is a deformation of our desire to possess material things. And by implication, sins twisting of the whole economic order. Alright? Bigger picture. It's not just excessive desire, but deforming our desire to possess material things. And by implication, sins twisting of the whole economic order. Uh, The splitting of our creativity and our relation to material creation off. From the Creator. Okay? So so to get down on a way deeper level, maybe some of you aren't that ready for going that deep this morning. But it really what this sin is really all about is corrupting our relationship with the material creation and our relationship with the Creator. Okay? And so that we don't relate properly to things okay and therefore cannot relate properly to the creator of all things separating ourselves as created beings and the created things surrounding us apart from the creator all right and a division between stuff and the one who made all the stuff that's really where the sin gains its power and where it has and where the real problem lies <clears throat> And this is better if you understand avarice and greed from this perspective than just saying, well, it's too much desire, uh, because where do you draw the line too much? You know? Where's the line? Too much is, is, is how much someone who has more than you. All right? You know, that's a flexible line, but when you see it as a breakdown or a corruption of a relation with, a proper relationship with, with material goods and the Creator, then it, it kind of narrows it down. <clears throat> so now, the, the creation didn't start out uh, corrupted like this. Our relationship with the creation was not initially corrupted. In the beginning, Genesis chapter 1, uh 31, God saw everything that he had made, everything that he had made. So all of material creation, right? And indeed, what was it? It was very good. Okay, so stuff is good. Everything is good. It's very good. And then then what happens? It says in Genesis chapter 2-7, it says, "...and the Lord formed man of the dust of the ground." Alright? Let's just think about that. We're made out of dust. From dust you have become, and from dust you will return. In Psalm 103, verse 14, it says, "...for He knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust." And so, in, in the creating of all the things, then he, then he forms man out of the dust of the earth. All right. And so, our material side of us actually is made out of the same raw material as everything else. We, are, we share a common plane of existence, uh, our, our bodily aspect. And that's good. That's part of the being very good. Genesis 2:7 says the Lord God framed man out of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and man became a living being. Listen to this quote. It says as our breath our breath is our life so God's life is his spirit. It is the breathing of that life into material nostrils a share in God's spirit that makes us truly human. Okay. We weren't really human yet. We were just a body until God breathed his spirit into us, then we became a living being. But nevertheless, we are material, but that is not all we are. True human life is related to dust but turned toward God. Knowing God and loving him, delighting in him, gladly relating to him as creatures and as his children is a basic a constituent To human existence as matter itself. Okay? So the relationship that we have, the life that we have in dependence with that spirit that God breathed into us is as basic a part of being a human as the fact that we are made out of the dust of the ground. Does that make sense? We're, we're two parts. Spirit, matter. And so, in the original, oh, the New Testament, uh, uh, New Testament also repeats the same theme. 2 Corinthians 4, 7 says, We have this treasure in earthen vessels. You know, our vessels, are, that just means we're made out of clay. And it's good to remember that. Alright? <coughs> really, stay, stay with me here. <coughs> Mankind's original design. Humans, human beings are creators within God's creation. Okay? So God took the dust to the ground and breathed his life into it, and it became something more. Alright? It became a living being, and that living being, Adam and Eve, and all of humanity, therefore reflects part of God's nature. Okay? Part of his person, because we are his creation. In the same way we take stuff, all right. and form it into something, and in doing so, we figuratively breathe our life into it, okay? As we shape it, we're investing ourselves. Anybody that's worked on something for a long time, you're investing part of yourself into that thing, into that project or that creation Okay, and so you're breathing life into it. And think of it in a garden, you, you till the soil, you weed it, you plant the seeds, you, you water it, you, there's a lot of work involved and then out of that the plants grow and you, and you harvest. Okay, or a piece of artwork, it's really easy to, to see it in that connection because it's, you start with nothing, just some raw materials and then something is created out of it. But it's the same thing if you work, if you're a construction worker and you're building a house, you invest yourself into that and you step back and go, wow, there's a house I just built. Or, or, you know, in any avenue of, uh, of your nurse and you're uh, helping patients, you're investing yourself into that. And, and sometimes you have to come up with creative solutions to a problem. That's you being connected with whatever you're doing in a real way. And so we are creators. Within God's creation, and so we share in God's creativity. We that's because we are created in His image. All right, and that's good. All right, this is the good part of, of how we are to relate to matter, a <clears throat> um, uh, creative art, and uh, <clears throat> particularly uh, uh, ex- creative expressions in art. I kind of want to uh, focus on this for just a minute. <clears throat> You know, you take, you take material things like canvas and paint or pencil, or uh, perhaps uh, uh, if you're a poet or a songwriter, you take letters and words, right? And you put them together. You invest yourself into them. Or if you're a musician, you take rhythm and melody, and you just take this raw material, like God took the raw material of earth and shaped it into a human Be a body, and then breathe life into it. When you breathe life into whatever you're creating, all right, even if it's making coffee or sandwiches at a a sandwich shop, you know, you're investing yourself into it in a little bit, and that's creativity. Even our most as abstract creations, something that's really non tangible, like a thought. You know, a thought is as equal spirit as it is matter. Because you wouldn't be able to think that thought if you didn't have a brain, okay? And that brain wouldn't be able to work if you hadn't eaten enough food and drinking enough water, right? So even something as abstract or immaterial as a thought is actually as much matter as it is spirit. Does that make any sense at all? Huh? Yeah, it makes sense, but who cares? (laughs) Okay, so we have creation. I've got to move on. From creation, we get the next idea of possession. Okay? <clears throat> so everything's good, and we are co-creators with Christ, and so we can create things like God create things in a, in a more limited way, of course. <laughs> um, but then we get this idea of possession. Now, where does that come from? Alright? <clears throat> Did personal possession of things exist before sin? Oh, some people are, God gave Adam and Eve, humanity, uh, authority over all the earth. But as far as we know, before sin, it's not like Adam had it personally. It was Adam and Eve's. Adam wasn't even, it was, actually before sin, Adam and Eve were called man. Human. Okay? You know, they weren't, they were one. And so this idea of personal possession. Let me read a quote just so so you all don't get mad at me. Westerners now take the idea of private property for granted and the absence of it as inconceivable tyranny. Okay? But this idea of, of, of mine. Mine! Right? We've all seen kids do this. You know, it's always intrigued me. In a nursery, there's like 20 toys. And one kid's got one toy. That's mine! And they only say it when the other kid reaches for it. Mine! And then they set it down over here. You know, and the kid goes over there. Mine! It's the child's version of avarice. Unfortunately, many adults have a grown-up version that's much more perverse. Okay? It's mine only for the sake of being mine. There's no real reason it's mine. You know, it's a nursery toy. You know? And there's that, that essence. Out of that grows after us. How about we say that? Okay? <clears throat> and this idea of personal property, you know, uh, the absence of it is inconceivable. It's tyranny. Of, it, you know, communism. And I'm not a communist, trust me. It's a, that's a failed economic system from the beginning. But would that have been the case if Adam and Eve had not sinned? Would personal possession even matter in a world where there wasn't any tyranny or selfishness or theft? Without any stain of sin, would it even matter? Are you seeing? If, something, if no one would ever steal anything, then you wouldn't have to worry about something being yours. But just just think about it for a while. Where is this idea of possession and how does it fit into a biblical framework and our relationship with the created matter? All right? <clears throat> and, and the book goes on for chapters discussing this. And it's an interesting thing to think through. The, the point that we lead up to is that regardless of how it might have been, because we don't know what, it, what the world would have looked like without sin, certainly there is a biblical, uh, clear biblical foundation for personal property. I'm in no way saying that. That's not biblical. <clears throat> uh, stealing wouldn't make any sense if somebody didn't own anything. <laughs> Alright? But what would it look like if there wasn't sin? And we don't really know. What we do know now is that... Let me just read this quote. <clears throat> our desire to possess as things are now is always infected with, this, with our rebellion against God. Okay? The desire to possess has in it an infection, all right, but there's a, there's a cure for that infection, that's what we're going to get to. So let's talk a little few minutes about right possession, uh, and I just want to give you the idea that avarice is really wrong possession, but before we touch on that, we're going to look a little bit at how can you possess something and still be right with God, okay, or that it can be in a healthy way. <clears throat> First of all, when you create, there's three ways. It's through creation. How can, you have your, how, how can you have a proper relationship of owning something that's not a perversion? Now, the bottom line is we don't own anything. All right? What, what are you going to take with you when you die? That's what you own. Everything else is borrowed. Okay? <clears> okay? <throat> but but is there any right possession is there a way to hold things dear that that, that is true? yes when you create something and you invest yourself into something through creating or restoring it that has value okay the value isn't in the object as much as your investment or your relationship with it in a proper way because like God breathed his spirit into the dust, you've breathed some of your life into something. And so there's good. That, that's healthy ownership. You realize it's just a thing, but you've poured part of your life into it. And so you can say that if you created something, if you took raw material and made something out, you can say that's, that's a reflection of me. That's, that's good healthy ownership. History is another healthy way to possess something. Okay, <clears throat> When you become involved with something over time... And, it, and personal experience. Let me just share it with you. <clears throat> uh, something that's happened to me in the last year or so. Uh, uh, Sarah and uh, a few other people were involved, and they, they redid my office and painted it. And I actually was out of town. I came back. It was all done. And, and Sarah had a great eye for for decorating, and <clears throat> she had bought a print and put it on the wall. And I was like, "This is great, you know." And that print is just the colors are right, but <laughs> I don't like it. <laughs> You know, it's like it just doesn't mean anything. And I would rather have a bare wall than have a piece of art on the wall that doesn't mean anything to me. I don't care how nice it is. It doesn't mean anything to me. All right. And so I can relate with this. And it didn't have meaning. I was like, I'm sorry, but let's just wait. Let's get rid of it. (laughs) <laughs> had to do it in a tackle way. And she was like, okay, we got rid of it. But then when we started doing the worship arts, and Heather actually did this painting of the sun, and I'm like, oh, that's great. I want this in my office. Because it has meaning. It's, it was produced. It has history and meaning. It has uh, a, a personal experience. I saw her painting. And I have a relationship with Heather. It goes back years. And it's an expression of worship. I want that in my office. And you can go check it out. It's in there right now. (laughs) All right. Or or think of a family heirloom. You know, the heirloom uh, uh, doesn't have much value, maybe, except for that boy, it was my dad's or it was my grandfather's. And the value of it increases as our history with it increases or our relationship. And that's good. Another way that we own something in a healthy way is community. Creation and thus ownership is always communal and social as well as individual. Needs are shared. Labor is shared. Control and administration are shared. And I want you to understand this. And please, turn off the he's a communist. (laughs) You know, because I'm not. That's just a political system. I'm talking about how do you relate to things. Think of this water bottle right here. All right? All right. I just took a sip of this water. Was that my water? Well, I didn't pump it out of the ground. I didn't make that plastic bottle. Somebody else did. What's the primary ingredient in plastic? Oil. Hmm? Oil, basically. And a few other ingredients thrown into a machine. So somebody labored to make this bottle and the cap and the label and the design. And then somebody labored in a factory that put all these bottles through a machine that filled them up. Right? And somebody labored <clears throat> put them in a box and deliver them to a store. And then someone in that store put them on a shelf. And I just happened to walk in and said, I want some water bottles. Well, actually somebody else bought them. And <laughs> I walked into the kitchen and said, hey, so I need a water bottle. You know. <clears throat> now when we understand things in a communal way, <clears throat> we take into acknowledgement uh all of these relationships, we, we, we acknowledge and we do not demean all of the individuals that invested some of themselves into this object. Okay? It respects the migrant worker. If you're eating fruit, it gives a respect to the migrant worker. If you're wearing clothes, there's a good chance they are made by a child laborer in China or Indonesia. Okay? And at least you give some respect. It's not, it's not really ultimately your shirt. Because someone else poured their sweat into that to make it. All right? And just acknowledging that does a lot to to combat or to counter the sin of avarice and greed, thinking it's yours, when really other people labored much harder than you did to produce that. Does that make sense? Or the business executive. You know? Frankly, without good business, we wouldn't have all of this stuff. You know? Yeah, <laughs> and so we, we, we acknowledge that that it's a communal effort or the retail clerk. By all of these things, we, we keep things in their proper place by acknowledging that everything really is the product of a lot of people's time and effort. Okay, and we acknowledge that and we value that. We don't ignore that. We don't just say, it's mine. Everest is... Putting something created in God's place. It, it, when you break those, those those proper links, then a thing becomes an idol. All right, uh, <clears throat> and it turns the whole or, or the whole order of creation upside down. Instead of everything flowing from a creator and, and investing himself into substance and creating mankind as a as a the creator in His image, and this flow, a godly flow, ordained uh, flow from God. Everything good is from God, and seeing it in relationship to everything else, we just take some created thing and say, "This is more important." We take it out of the context that we received it in, and that's when that's where avarice comes in, and greed comes in, and covetous comes in, uh, um, and, and, and 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 it's idolatry. It really is. It's substituting uh, uh, something for the place of God all right, in our lives. It's making it more important. <clears throat> uh, idolatry is a form of substitution. And the, the fact of the matter is, often as humans, we prefer the immediate visible glory we can grasp to the invisible glory of God. All right, <clears throat> So it's sometimes really hard to experience the invisible glory of God. But it's really easy if there's something you like that you can touch. All right? and, and, and greed and covetousness is, 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 real, is, is mistaking uh, um, the, the difference and putting something that is tangible that you can touch in the place that is reserved for God in your life. That's when it becomes idolatry. Here's another thing. We we adore what we lack. We worship what we lack. All right? Think about this for a minute. All right? The quote in the book says, Shopping malls may cultivate avarice like brothels do lust. You know, we just, in our in our society, we're just so stimulated about, with things. And, and if we lack something, we want that. And so we go out and try to buy something because we have this lack. To make up for a lack, we buy something. We don't feel we're smart enough, so we get a smartphone. <laughs> you know, I was in, the, in Best Buy just the other day. And there was a, a guy in front of me and he was like really out of shape. I mean, like. I could tell see you know, he's probably diabetic. He's certain, you know, and he's an older gentleman, you know. But he had the Wii and the Wii Fit and all the Wii Fit accessories. I mean, like he just bought everything, all right? Like all the Wii accessories that have to do with exercise, he bought them. And I was like, huh? I wonder if he's going to use them. You know, because buying it is not going to make you in shape. You know, you can have a gym membership, but it doesn't make you healthy unless you actually go and exercise. Right? So buying that doesn't get you something. How many of us have things in our basement or our garage that the glory has faded? Okay. All those plans now they're just covered with dust. The reason is that you cannot buy character. It's got to be built. You know those things may be good tools, but you can't it doesn't it doesn't you can't buy what you lack most of the time. What you really lack. And the last thing about idolatry that makes it bad is that it's control. Alright? <clears throat> um we prefer idols because we're still in control. All right. Ultimately, we put it there, and we can take it out if it is no longer convenient. But God's got an issue. He likes to be God. <laughs> All right, <clears throat> Because He knows it's best for you. All right, I'm going to talk a little bit about Jesus' viewpoint of possessions, and then talk about three remedies for avarice, and then I'll be done. What did Jesus think of uh, things? <clears throat> Luke twelve fifteen says, and he said to them, Take heed and beware of covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of the things he possesses. Listen, Jesus said it really clear. Your life doesn't possess it doesn't consist in what you possess. Right? Your life isn't in the stuff you have. And so if you have to get rid of everything, it doesn't matter. Because you know what? You're going to get rid of everything. I guarantee it, every one of you. Everything you own, you're going to lose. So don't hold it so tightly. All right? Even if they stick it into the casket with you, it isn't going to come in the resurrection. There's only one thing you can take to heaven with you. You know what it is? Other people. It's a quote. Luke 18, Jesus said to this one young man that wanted to... He says, I, I want to follow you with my whole heart. What do I lack? He says, you still lack one thing. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor and you'll have treasure in heaven. And Come follow me. And the guy couldn't do it. Because he liked his stuff too much. Alright? <clears throat> in Jesus... See, Jesus, as far as we know, did not own anything. We don't know. The fact that we don't know is evidence enough that He didn't really value possessions. Alright? Even on the, on the cross, they took His robe. Right before they nailed him up. And then his final act of renunciating everything material was in his death. But the redemption is in his resurrection. Because he is redeemed not as a spirit, his resurrection is not in spirit only, but in body. He bodily resurrected. Okay, so in the resurrection, he redeems all things material in his body. Alright? Yeah. And so we need to understand that what, what has gone wrong in avarice in Jesus is set right. So we can have proper relationship with things, stuff, through proper relationship with Jesus Christ. Alright, three remedies for avarice. I have to get to these. The first is faith. Accept God's act of liberation, freedom from greed, covetousness, wrong possession, improper relationship with material things. Jesus came to set you free from that. Accept it and trust Him to save you from a trap that we are unable to save ourselves from. Okay, we're caught in a whole. The whole world system is set up, and you cannot break the system of of, of unfulfilled desire and covetousness. Okay, by mere uh, 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 strength of willpower, you need a deliverer. We need to be set free. So accept that freedom from guilt. And from Everest, from idolatry. Lifestyle. Alright, second Second, <clears throat> second remedy for covetousness. If anyone in the room, by the way, thinks they don't have a problem with covetousness, you're wrong. Alright, I'm sorry to say it this way, but I, I'm running out of time. I, I have to make things brief. <laughs> <clears throat> I'm serious, man. As Americans, we are going to stand before God and we are going to have to give account. And you're going to find out that you're you're one of the wealthiest people that has ever lived on planet Earth. All right, and you think you're poor? That's covetousness. Okay. So, accept Jesus's redemption, so that you can have right relationships. Second, lifestyle. There's two historic um, ways to two lifestyles you can choose. One is deliberate. Poverty. How many want to say amen to that? (laughs) Let's just read this quote. The Christian church urgently needs some of its members to be visibly poor in an act of free renunciation. We need visible examples of the dependence on God alone. People who trust themselves to God's care without compromise as Jesus did. In a world in which the value of persons is defined by economic terms alone, we need people who witness that only God defines human value. This is different than the spirit of poverty that thinks that that God doesn't want you to have anything or that you're not worthy of having anything. This is realizing that, you know what? You're the child of the God who owns everything, and you don't need any material possession. You don't need to own or control anything. You just want to be a servant. You'll go anywhere and do anything. without. And there's some people called to that. All right? It's an act of womb. Listen, like fasting is for gluttony, or celibacy is for lust. Deliberate poverty is for avarice. Okay? Non-deliberate poverty, if you're just poor because you don't work or, you know, or some other reason, doesn't necessarily have virtue. But when you choose, maybe just for a season, for a year of your life, you're going to live without any stuff. Or whatever. The second, very few are called to that, but we're all called to stewardship. That's the only other alternative for a godly lifestyle of relationship with material stuff. Devout poverty, intentionally, out of faith, or stewardship. Stewardship is simply stewards' rule and care for something on behalf of its true owner. Alright? We urgently need Christians who deliberately choose to live in the midst of a world as if God really were the Lord and Creator of it all. You know? Can we live as though really God is in control? Do you realize that everything you have Is a gift from the Father? How are you managing it? Do you know that you will be asked to give an answer to that question? If you've been given much, much will be expected from you. Alright? That's talking about stuff, guys. But if you hoard the stuff, if you keep the stuff, if you say it's mine, you know, then there's corruption in there. We demonstrate stewardship through creativity, generosity, thankfulness, contentment, and justice. Last aspect, three ways of dealing with uh, uh, overcoming uh, the influence of avarice. One is accepting the freedom in Christ. Two is a deliberate lifestyle, either uh, deliberate poverty or stewardship. Three is (coughs) tithing. And we just happen to produce, by coincidence actually, This brochure on tithing, we've been working on it for quite a while. It goes back to in the connection counter. And it's, tithing is one, and this is a quote from the book, one very small beginning in the war against avarice is within the reach of almost everyone. The tithe. And if you don't know what the tithe is, read the brochure. Okay, but when you give back a portion of what God has given you, it's a concrete way of demonstrating that it's not yours. How many want to receive blessings in a concrete way? All right? Only about half of you. The rest of you could just have imaginary blessings. But in order to bless, you want to bless God or give thanks in a concrete way. And there's no better way than putting money in the basket. Conclusion. All right? We're all pulled into these sins because the whole world system is pulled into these sins. Jesus said, whoever commits sin is a slave of sin. Sin at its core is slavery. But, if the enemy of the devil, the enemy of our soul can convince us that it's not really an evil master, sin's really our friend, or maybe it's just our little weakness, then we're not going to walk in the freedom that Jesus died and rose to give us. Alright? So this is all really about freedom. Sin is the refusal of human beings to let God be God. It's the decision to create a false center for life, an idol to which we give our ultimate loyalty. Accepting Jesus puts God back on the throne. Welcome, Adam, for some announcements. right, thank you, Cameron. We want to welcome our guests. Thank you for joining us here at New Day today. We have a